0: So in that, as we start off, is um, if you have a Bible, join with me in Titus. But as we get started, I wanted to take a few moments and uh, share with you uh, a little bit about Crossway and, and about what we're doing. And I'll, I'll try to integrate some things uh, throughout the message as well. Uh, but it is a blessing to be with you. Um, I've known Steve um, for those, as it mentioned earlier for. quite a while and Steve and his sister Sonia were part of a summer project that we had I was a college pastor Steve was a student and they lived with us for a a good portion of a summer and I I remember just the um, of God's grace and and mercy uh, and just seeing uh, what God has done in birthing and and growing uh, Rock Valley Bible and so it's a blessing to be here we have prayed for you Um, there are people throughout the country there's approximately 30 now churches that have affiliated in some way with Cro- on the crossway network uh, most of them have been birthed um a few are have been adopted in which you're considering being adopted in and so we're, we're grateful we're trusting the lord that that we're just beginning of what he's uh, he has started and and delighted to be able to partner in some way especially now that we've come back to the midwest after being gone for about 25 years we um, my wife and I had the privilege to start the first crossway in Fort Collins, Colorado, and we we arrived in 1992. We were sent out from a church here um, that was somewhat associated with this church, uh, originally where Steve and I met at, at Grace Church of DuPage, and we were um, in that. I remember arriving with my wife Dawn, our, and our, at that point, almost or three-year-old, and then our golden retriever, who went lap, from lap to lap across from... Uh, to Fort Collins, Colorado. And remember in that is that when we arrived, we didn't have anyone to help us unload our trucks. And I remember having the opportunity to meet some guys that had fraternity sweatshirts on that were working that summer in the hotel uh, doing maid service or whatever. And and housekeeping. And so I asked him, I said, hey, do you know any other fraternity brothers? I was in a fraternity at Purdue. Um, I became a follower of Christ at Purdue. But I mentioned it to them as, hey, I was in a fraternity at Purdue and uh, where I went to school. And do you know any fraternity brothers? Help me unload my truck and I'll buy you guys lunch and I'll pay you an hourly wage. And so he showed up with three or four guys and we started to share That was the start of a Crossway Chapel. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to gamble I'm back there. I'm going to gamble. Yeah, I'm gonna. Because, I, because I hear myself going in and out, and that's gonna be a little bit bothersome for me and probably you as well. So we're we're gonna go ahead and set this aside, and we're gonna go with this. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, okay. Great. Thank you. All right. In that is the um. So as we. As we had a chance and privilege to start, our vision, our desire was that God would allow us to start multiple churches. That was our heart's desire when we started, saying, Lord, would you allow us to be a part of seeing your gospel go forth and see people, primarily unchurched people that are not under the word of God, come to Christ and come to know and love the Savior. And God was so gracious that he'd use messed up, broken um, people that need the savior every day to be a part of his gracious work of his, the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and so we we saw God grow the church and and begin to multiply it out and, and, and as we thought about it we said you know as we as we understand what God's called us to do make disciples and we look at the word of God one of the things that becomes very clear is that there's a, a pattern that he's laid out in the word of God and and we see this pattern in a moment I'll kick to tie it back into the book of Titus. But th- this pattern is that we make disciples, is that we see people come to know and love the Savior. They're baptized. And, and as they grow in their walk with God, they understand that they're part of this great story, this great plan of God. And they begin to share Christ and reach their neighbors and their friends. And that begins to expand. And, and in that process of growing and expanding is that churches are birthed and multiplied. And we are part of this the story of God, and, and so in that is it our heart's desires. We thought more about it as we saw the word of God was not so much American model of church success, but is which would simply be bigger is always what better. better. Having been part of a church that of of approximately ten thousand, I was on staff with in Southern California, and realizing that eighty percent of those people were not being shepherded, were not giving, were not using their gifts, and and always asking myself the question is well, how does God look at all that? You know, how does God look at that kind of paradigm or that understanding of success in, in the church and, and couldn't help but wrestle with that, the fact that that's not what God desires. Instead, we see a pattern of, of churches being multiplied and growing and, and that are, are expanding. So as we thought about it, we said, well, let, let's assume that as we multiply churches that, that they, they don't get any bigger than, let's say, an average of 200. Now, you folks are on your way to 200. And, it's, and by God's grace, it won't be too long as you begin to bump up against that number. But let's assume for the average that, that we don't get any larger than 200. And most of the crossways are larger, but let's assume on an average they are 200. And they plant a church every seven years, every seven years. Um, and so we, now it, it takes some time initially, um, a challenge to get it the first one started. But once you get... The systems and growing your people and a, develop a culture of multiplication, it's really not that hard. And when we left the church in Fort Collins, we were planning a church about every year when we left there. And so let's assume that happens. But let's say, we, so not any larger than 200. And then we multiply. And then where would, where would the church in there, our influence be when we hit life expectancy? And, and as you begin to play those numbers out, is that you begin to hit over 100,000 people have come to, to know Christ and love God through that kind of mathematics, that kind of multiplication. And it's a biblical pattern. And so for us, as we began to think through as reaching people, our desire and coming back to the Midwest from the South, from being in North Carolina after 12 years, was the question is, God, how can we truly maximize this little vapor we have, this short little span of life? How can we maximize it and to make a difference? And we said, you know, really, we feel like we need to go back to a group of people that we have the greatest affinity with. A greatest understanding. And so we arrived in November, realizing that God had called us back to the Midwest. I was raised a Midwesterner. Dawn was born in the Northeast, but she lived here and, and she understands it. And, and so we, we are delighted to be back, but with the goal, with no mistake, is that we would see churches multiplying. And the Chicago, greater Chicagoland area that Rockford, I know is its own separate entity, but, but not too far from Chicago, right? Is that there's 8.1 million people without the gospel right now in the Chicagoland area? Just think about that for a moment. 8.1 million people that are awakening this morning without Christ in the Chicagoland area. And I thought, as if we could come back and and begin to help develop the the Crossway Fox Valley, and then partner by God's grace uh, with Rockford um, here at. Uh, Rock Valley Bible is that we could begin to start a network, much like we did in Fort Collins, where there's been eight churches that have started within 40 minutes of each other, and begin to partner and see a lot of things happen to reach people that right now are awakening without hope and without Christ. And so that's really why we're back here. And it's, and and my hope was in coming here is to have a chance to say hi. Uh, I know Clark, who I serve with in Rock, in bound um, in Fort Collins, opened the word here a couple months ago, and. Uh, I I just was looking forward to being able to personally come up and and share the word of God with you. Well, as God would have it, if you go back about 2,000 years, is that the Apostle Paul, who used to be known as Saul and a persecutor of Christ, he comes to faith in the Lord, as many of you know. As he comes to faith, God commissions him to go and and see churches expanded and multiplied, lays out this pattern as we see in the book of Acts. And in that is that he led them to Crete. It was a godless culture. Crete would have been as closest to maybe today is a uh, modern day Las Vegas. Oh, I'm not, my wife and I are not big fans of Las Vegas. When we travel, we tend to kind of go through Las Vegas. <clears throat> but it's a place that had a reputation in some ways of, of, of where you would escape from morality. You could cut loose and be wild and crazy. You would go to Crete. It had a, a euphemism of the day of, of of being Cretan. Act Cretan-like was to be crazy and wild. Like if you were Cretan-like, and then Paul is writing to Titus, who's left on Crete, this island. It's a, approximately 120 miles long and I don't know 30, 40 miles wide in in the in the Mediterranean. And they had shared the gospel, and he's left, left them there to. To establish and, and set in order what remains. And so you see this entire, as he starts the book in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, as you write back to Titus, a servant of God, speaking of himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, is chosen, and their knowledge of the truth which is accords with godliness. So right from the start, he's helping remind Titus that the gospel that has come to them, the truth that has come to the people that God has brought to himself, is that knowledge of truth, what? Impacts what? Our conduct, right? According to what? Godliness. That there is a God likeness a Christ likeness that is is characteristic of God's people that is progressively over time that is we see is that this grace when it comes into our lives it, it transforms us it has this transforming changing power and he continues to qualify it he says in verse 2 in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised Before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So Paul understanding now is he underscores this weighty responsibility that God has given him to take the gospel out, to proclaim the gospel. And he's talking about this gospel that comes in right from the start with this transforming power, this godliness, this knowledge comes. It impacts Monday morning, right? 8 a.m. How we live. And so he goes on to say to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he tells you the purpose of this. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. Comma. Here's the purpose clause. So that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he's going to go on and talk about elder qualities. He's going to talk about then is how then is not only the elders to be but all those within the body he talks about in chapter 2 older men he says but as for you teach what chapter 2 verse 1 what accords with sound doctrine In other words that when the truth comes into our lives it has influence it changes us and he talks to older men in verse 2 older men verse 3 older women verse 4 young women and then he talks to young men in verse 6. And then he talks about the servants. Verse 10, he goes, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything, speaking primarily the servants here, that you might adorn or wear the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, the truth, when it comes into your life, that it should demonstrate it almost as if you have the clothes of truth on you, that you have a certain Christ-like look about you. There's a certain godliness about you when the grace of God has come into your life. Now, keeping in mind, again, this was a pretty godless culture. And it had an impact. Now, let me ask you this. Are God's people any less different or to be any less different today than it was then in Crete? Are we to be any less different or are we to adorn any less the truth or the doctrine of God in how we live our lives? Because the reality is, I think, in, in a personal way, is there are times in my life where I have wrestled as a Christian, having come to Christ in 1978 as a student at Purdue. Since then, where as I remember I've had times and occasions where I'm just like, Lord, you're supposed to be changing me, and, and I still wrestle with these areas in my life. I, re- I remember dealing with, as a young man, pornography, and I remember as an unsaved child, and, and then... As a young man, as well, just the pull of, of immorality through pornography, and and I remember I came to faith, and I had such expectancy that God was going to just transform, and it was like done. And and I remember this gorilla in the room that that was on my back time and time again with 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 pornography, and and, and I take it, parents, that you're going to explain that to your children. I'm not going to get any more detailed than that, but and so in that is that. Um, is that I remember coming to Christ and walking with the Lord, but wrestling, And then I realized, oh my goodness, that gorilla is still in the room. I thought the gorilla was gone when it came to faith. And oh my goodness, it's still there. And, and one of the realizations I had to understand is that, that, that God had a process of changing us and transforming us and making us free and giving us freedom. But I didn't understand how that worked and how God did that. And, and so there was this desire in me, Lord, change me. You know, I was, I was dying for change. I was so longing for there are areas in my life I came from a background as a as a growing up of five boys. We fought, you know, and I used my dad taught us how to box when I was a kid and I boxed in college. And I was a fighter and I remember part of that anger is asking God to change me where I wasn't so prone to fight or to get violent or or to get angry with people. I remember as a young believer, I had cheated my way through a private ed- co- uh, high school and, and to get into Purdue. And I remember the impulse to continue to cheat. My twin brother lived, would see, sit right in front of me, and he would, was more studious than I was. And I would, I would cheat off of him. I remember just saying, God, please change me. Like, please change me. Make me different. Because of the gospel as it makes us, and, and there are times where I would fail, and, and I would fail miserably, and I just remember, just just this desire, saying, Lord, I want you to change me. God, I am dying for change. And it doesn't just impact me, it just impacts those around me who see my life. You know, I'm in a fraternity, and I, I go from organizing keggers in my fraternity house, and and to to them leading a Bible study, and they're looking closely at my life. These are 70 or 80 guys I live with, and they're looking at my life, and they're saying, you know, what's different about you, Tom? You know, what's different about you? I was dying for change. Well, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of people that are still dying for change that... And, and I submit to you, for all honest with each other, as I'm even looking at your faces, some of you might be a little bit disturbed even mentioning the, the P word. Um, but I tell you, I, I'm, for, for the sake of all of the young men in here that got dialed in automatically, immediately when I said that word, this is a message that needs to be talked about. But I'm not going to talk about it more today. So relax, it's okay. <laughs> So in that is that, um, we're, we're just in this authenticity about our lives is desiring to see God's grace. Is that He helps us explain how does that take place? How does that transformation take place in what God does in our lives? This dying for change, and He tells us at the core of it is, is it's in chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen. But I want you to understand right from the start that transformation is accomplished. Is, is is God brings about transformation? through the spirit of God, by the word of God, in the community of God's people. That's how transformation takes place. And if you remove any one of those, you will not see God's transforming grace in your life. And so what Paul does is he, he's calling them, older men, I want you to see what it looks like to walk with Jesus. I want to see older women, what it looks like, young women, young men. He's already talked about the elders in the body. And then he tells them, well, well, why is it? Where does this come from? And he tells us right here in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. I'm just going to hit on a few points here as we go through the passage. And he says this, why is it that this transformation is to happen? Why is it that we're to adorn the doctrine of God as he calls the servants? He says, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. And it's bringing salvation to all people. It's not just for Jews. All different types of people training us to renounce ungodliness, to say no, to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled or sensibly upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all... Lawlessness or every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what he helps him understand is that this, there's this grace that God brings about, this grace of God that has appeared in Christ's coming, the gospel that he proclaims in Christ's coming, the person and work of Jesus Christ he's referring to, that has come to all men. And so the first realization I want you to grab hold of is and it's I think these are fundamental to all the crossways as we've sought to create a culture that is has this authenticity about it that sees transformation is that all real life is grounded in for the, in the awareness. This is the first realization the first point that all real life is grounded in the awareness of God's exceeding grace. That all real life, when, when, it gets, when you get past all of the stuff of life, when you get, distill it down, is that there is this realization, this groundedness, this awareness, this growing awareness of God's exceeding loving grace in our lives. Exceeding loving grace. Progressively in my life, <clears throat> that I come to understand that God has brought this, that God pursued me, that God died for me, that the grace of God has appeared. He has rescued me. That Jesus came, he was born and he died. One of the reasons I just love the worship time was just the richness of the lyrics. <clears throat> and then also the Bible reading that, <clears throat> excuse me, that focused on Christ to remember Christ. And and part of the walking with Christ since 1978 imperfectly was this, is this ongoing reminder of who Christ is, that, that when I have to remind myself, it's not yada, yada, yada. How many of you ever seen the Charlie Brown movies when the teacher talks in Charlie Brown, you, you, those movies, what does the teacher sound like? Bwah, 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 right? Some of you are already like that. You're, you, you can be so conditioned by the word of God. You might be tempted to think, you know what, I'm going to tune him out because he's womp, 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 And yet God continues to bring us back to, we know, don't want, want, want me, Uh, but, but hang in there because realizing that what we're talking about is that if we talk about God's grace and you start to go, want, 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 your heart is already cold. There's already spiritual things going on that you need to zero in on there, right? Because what he's talking about here is that this salvation has come, that this, that real life is to be grounded in this growing awareness of God's exceeding loving grace that grace of God has appeared, has brought salvation. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer damned. I'm no longer under the bondage of sin and under the crush of the law against my soul, but I've been set free. I'm not a cosmic accident. I'm not, I'm, I'm one who's been made uniquely by God, who has pursued me, the sovereign creator. He's come into my life and he's pursued me. That's a message for today. Do you know, interesting enough, there's a book that's come out recently and it was done by including a gentleman named Kinnaman um, and he's co-authored. And the Barna group, they, they poll the, the tens of thousands of people. They're, they're, they're people that do research. And, and one of the things that came out of the book that I think is pretty accurate, it's good for us to think about as those who claim to know Jesus Christ is that Currently today in the United States, it's, it's not this 23, 24% are evangelical. It's not like simply this, this, this voting block that votes you know, this way or that way that's evangelical. It's actually, more accurately, 7% of our country is evangelical right now. Now, I'm not saying who would identify themselves as evangelical. I'm saying 7% who actually believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then this book is inspired. That's the 7% I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the voting populace that votes one way or the other. But 7%, just think about that. And now, in a growing way in our country, that 7% currently is viewed as irrelevant and extreme. Simply by praying in public. Do you know that the, that 93% looks at evangelicals? And they just scratched their heads, a lot. much of them just scratched their heads. Like, what? like, that is a weird group of people. They are just odd. They are just odd. And do you know that 93% see it, it's more immoral to not recycle trash than to look at pornography? That 93% of the rest of the world, that we, in the United States, the rest of the people, is that they think it's more immoral to not recycle trash than it is to look at pornography. Because they've grown up with the digital, the millennial generation, all that's come with that, right? Because they grow up with such access to it. So in that is that when we think about this this salvation that's come, is that we're going to, this transforming grace of God comes, is that the world needs to see and hear that, you know what? From us who truly know Jesus Christ, you are not a cosmic accident that's going from oblivion to oblivion. You are been made by God and God has made you. And this salvation has come by a God who knows you by name. That's the message we need to proclaim. That's the message that our friends and our neighbors need to hear. You know, most people in the United States come to Christ before the age of 23. And so what does that mean for our young people? Is that, you know, a lot of you, for in, let, let all of you children, if you're, Children, preschoolers—no, not preschoolers. Well, preschoolers would be included too. Um, if you're children—if you're under the age of, of, let's see, of 12 years old—would you raise your hand for me? Would you raise your hand under the age of 12 years old? Okay, great, awesome. Do you know? Thank you. You can put your hands down. If you can look at me just for a moment, do you know that when I first came to Christ, I—well, when I first started to hear about Christ, I didn't come to Christ until college, but. It was children your age in my neighborhood that started to tell me about Jesus. Did you know that? No. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you have a special role. You really do. You have a special role in God's plan. And you know, many there'll be many stories in heaven of some wild kid that had brothers that fought his way through junior high uh, that you, people like you told about talked about Jesus, and I, I and I used to go think you were weird and and yet wind up being a pastors and missionaries all over the world, right? For those of you who are in, in junior high and high school age, would you raise your hand? Junior high and high school age, would you raise your hand? Now, if you're young, by the way, you should have been included in one of those groups, right? So, did I miss a grade? Some of you are like, some of these kids, I have not risen my, raised my hand. All right, well, may the Lord have mercy on your sin six troubled up souls. Okay, so, all right, so everybody, all the other children, if you're not, if you're not 18, raise your hand. If, if you haven't been included. There we go. Okay, thank you so much. Now, you are actually probably in the ripest group of people to share the Christ with your neighbors. That will actually come to Christ. Your, your age group. Your age group. You're, you're, you're not B team. You're not on the bench. You are on the playing field. You're in the game. It's, it's really, it's not somebody else. It's not getting to my parents to tell them, it's you. I remember, um, I remember this guy in, in junior high. He'd wear this shirt, Jesus is Lord. I'm like, man, that is uncool. I, I go like, that is just totally uncool. Jesus is Lord. And he'd have a Bible and he'd carry it and he'd talk about Jesus. I thought it was weird, but man, I respected him. I'm like, man, that guy's bold. And then I remember I was in, in high school And I'd heard about this. My folks shipped me across state lines, sent me to a private high school. And um, I'd go back to the football games where I was living in Niles, Michigan. And I remember they were telling me about the starting quarterback who had just transferred in from Coldwater, Michigan, and who was Christian. And they were laughing about him because he would bring his Bible to school with him. And he, they said, oh, he eats Christ Krispies. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, it's amazing. I, here I am like 40 years later, and I still remember that joke they said at the football game. That he eats Christ Krispies. Not Rice Krispies, but Christ Krispies, right? And I met this guy, and I go, man, this guy's for real. Starting quarterback on the football team. Varsity. And he is bold as a lion, man. He loves Jesus. You know what? You get the backstory. He had some family. He got family members that were investing in his life. He had a dad that was discipling him, pouring into his life, encouraging him. He had an influence on this relatively tall guy named Tom Harkis. Just watching his life from a distance. For you young people, you, high school, junior high, grade school, You are on the mission field. You need to see your friends that way, your neighbors, who you do sports with. There is no second team. You're not going to have to wait someday. The Bible and God's people, we need you to take up your place in this. And so he says the the real life is grounded in the first realization is grounded in the awareness of God's exceeding and loving grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Amen to that, right? There's a second realization I want you to see from the text. Is in verse 12, is that genuine salvation brings about change. That genuine salvation brings about change. for he says this is that this grace of God that has come this, that brings salvation. It instructs us or it teaches us. In verse 12, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. And to live self-control or to live sensibly upright, godly lives in this present age. The emphasis he's saying is that it's not just the future, like future age, but the present age, that when God's salvation comes into your life, it changes you. It has this capacity to transform you, to make you different. Not perfect, but different. There is a progressive, transforming grace of God that takes place in your life. This transforming grace of God for instructing us that there's this genuine instructing, teaching, training that goes, goes about because of this genuine internal work of God that tells you in the, to say no to ungodliness, to, to say no to the, the old way the ways of the world, and to live instead sensibly or or self-controlled. And and, and this self-controlled is the soundness of mind, that everything in your life is under your mind's control that is governed by truth. There's this self-control that's come into your life. Now, I don't know about you, but this offers me great hope. That the time tomorrow can be different than the time what? Today. That there's this progressive, transforming grace of God that God builds and brings about in my life. This genuine salvation brings about change in our lives. And I I praise God for it. I I remember, um, I have a twin brother, John, and and, uh, I had been a Christian for about two years or so. And God was changing me. I mean, it was, I, I remember feeling like, you know, if you've ever, how many of you ever burned leaves in like a metal trash can? Any any metal is that even allowed in Illinois anymore? I don't know. No, they don't even allow it anymore. Okay, so it's like younger people, are like what are you talking about? But if you can imagine with me, um, is that what it leads to is like this carbon, this soot, this black soot from the byproduct of the leaves being burned, trash being burned in a, in a metal trash can. And I remember just sensing it as, as I was meditating in the Word of God, and I had when I came to Christ that next summer, I read through the New Testament. And I just, I just immersed myself in the word of God. And I, th- I could even sense it. I'm like neurologically, I could sense God changing me. I, I, I felt like somebody was taking this high industrial cleaner and just cleaning out all the soot and junk in my life. That Not just that God had transformed me before himself in a positional sense, but in a practical sense, he was changing me. That There was this instructing that was taking place of God's grace in my life that was recalibrating, reorienting me, that was learn, helping me learn how to relate to others and not be self-centered and to, honor, to be a man of integrity with my speech and, and what I, my conduct when nobody's looking. That would be one that would never cheat again by God's grace. There, there's this instructing to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, that those impulses that I had, that God was t- changing me and transforming me. And so I had a chance then shortly thereafter I was with my twin brother, John, and and we were, I had brought him to a Bible study. The first Bible study, as far as I know, that he had gone to that was evangelical. And he was, he went to Indiana University. I went to Purdue. We, we, it was interesting as twins, there's a whole rivalry there, but, and we were, we were talking about what God had done. And and, and after the Bible study, we were shadow boxing. Now shadow boxing, because I boxed, um, and some of you may be from a boxing background, is that I could, we don't have gloves on. Or headgear or mouth guard. But I could punch somebody like this because I'm used to it is that I can come really close to you, but I'll never hit you unless you lunge forward all of a sudden. And so we were shadow boxing, and John doesn't have as much of a boxing background, but he's a little bit stronger than I am, heavier. And and so, but you know you're going to win if you're you're staring at a fist that counts for one point. Right? If you're staring at a fist when you're shadow boxing, that counts for a point because you're looking at a fist, and they know that if you had gloves on, that would have hit. And so we're shadow boxing; we weren't hitting each other, but we were shadow boxing. And somebody called me, and I dropped my, my my hands like this, and bam, he hit me. And he's stronger. I played defensive end next to him; he played defensive tackle. You can, for those who enjoy football, you understand the correlation of just body types. And man, he, he got me, he brought me down to one knee. Bam, he hit me just like that. Because I, I dropped, somebody called me and I dropped my guard and I didn't know he was going to hit me. And bam, he hit me and my, I started to swell. I go, man, John, you really got me. And, and I was, I got to, I was on one knee and I kind of looked up and I, I started to look through the other eye and I could see my brother like this. He's looking at me because I was the fighter amongst the two. I was the more fighter, aggressive one he's like this and then he relaxed his shoulders and i'll never forget what he said this was said i almost brings tears in my eyes um when, when i say this is um he said tom man, you really have changed because in the past because he hit me like i would have went back and tried to hit him right because of my anger issues and and i would have wound up trying to you know get a couple good shots in on him and he said man tom you really have changed well, it's, it's, part, it's the person who know, knew me better than anybody on the planet, my twin brother. We, we were womb mates uh, for, for nine and a half months, or nine months, nine months. Actually, we were preemies, we were seven months, so womb mates, for the children to talk to your parents later. Oh, so... Um, <laughs> So this genuine saving change that God brings about change, that it instructs us. So it wasn't a matter of me looking at the mirror and going, change, Tom, change. You know, and I, I was in, in, in that, on campus and, okay, Tom, you're a Christian now. Just You've got to make it happen. You've just got to do what's right. But, but there was this inward work of God's grace that does this supernatural empowering, transforming influence in us. That began to transform me, began to transform my thought life, began to give me the power to walk away from foolishness walk away from the cesspools that I used to go to in my life, the idols that I would go to. He began to help me learn how to do that. And I had other brothers around me as the word of God, as I was immersing myself in the word of God and meditating on truth, particularly Romans chapter six, is that what shall you say, Tom? So you continue in pornography, continue in anger, you know, all these different things, which is, so you continue to sin that grace might increase me and never be. How are you, Tom? Dead to that. And I remember I would read it every morning, every night. I memorized the first 11 or 12 verses of Romans six to this day. I can almost quote it verse by verse, but I've never reviewed it because it was just such a part of my life early on of meditating on the word of God and seeing it change me, transform my life within the community of God's people. And I had other brothers in my life that were journeying with me. Were helping me, saying, "Hey, you know, let me come alongside. Let me help walk this with you. You know what you're doing here. You're making a provision for the flesh. It's not going to help you. And that God is, He loves you. He doesn't want you to go back there. He doesn't want you to live that way anymore. God has set you free, Tom. You don't need these. Rela- Tom, why are you spending time with these young ladies? That they, they, they're they're spiritually dead. They're, they're zombies. You know, maybe for they're 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 the Walking Dead spiritually. You have nothing." the most fundamental way in your life, you have nothing in common with them because Jesus has made you different. You are a saint, right? A saint, right? That's how he identifies believers. Literally set apart ones, sanctified saints. Not based on a performance of, of some high achievement to be recognized when after I die, but all believers, those who've been transformed. So what am I to do with, with partnering? And the brothers would come alongside and help me in journey. Genuine salvation brings about change. There's this transformation that God does. And if you're here without Christ, and, then you know, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, about the rut of sin. You know what, I, for you young people, well you, you may have been church, you may have been baptized, but you've never been revolutionized by the power of God's spirit in your life. And so, you, so you're still dealing with some of the same secret sins in your life. And, and I just want to encourage you that there is so much more for you that God has in a true saving work of God's to say, Lord, save me. Maybe it's an impulse you have toward the, the Satan has lied to you, told you, you know what, you're, 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 you're a homosexual or, or you're, 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 yes, you're a woman, but you were really, you're meant to be a man or vice versa. All those confusion, those are just lies. Those are just temptations that Satan sells you. And I just want to encourage you that God and his power will empower you to walk differently with freedom. If you've gone to a public school and you've walked with purity, you're probably getting the gay card already played against you. They're trying to, because you're not immoral, you go, know, you're gay and you, that's going to get played against you. And then Satan's going to wind his, weave his way in there and, and start to play with your mind, right? And, and you just need to be understand that, you know what, God has made you that way. And he has the power to transform you to walk in freedom. And that someday by his grace, you will look back at that temptation and go, what in the world was that? That was weird. That was like really weird and goofy. God is able. He's a transforming, genuine, saving power. The third realization we see in the passage, verse 13, he says that looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus is that that third realization is that true saving faith brings about a future heavenly focus. Because we know when the Lord comes back is that it is a, it is a rescue, that our rescuer for those pe- of God's people that are still here is that as we are rescued when he returns, there is this call to God to say, God, I, I love you. God, you're, you're, you're rescuing me out of this, that there is this. And that also culminates into the Lord judging sin and is also then bringing about the new heaven and the new earth, that there is a, a, an eternity awaiting God's people. And so there's this heavenly focus that says this is not all about here. It's not all about here, but there is this transforming power of God. The true saving faith brings about this future heavenly focus, this heavenly mindset, looking for this, this, this eagerly anticipation, this waiting, this anticipation for the blessed hope, this happy, blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, that Jesus's return for his people will instill this everlasting righteousness that scripture speaks of. And so I have to remind myself time and time again that it's not all about this, right? It's not about that as the church in Crete had to understand that this wasn't it. This culture that they're continually feeling a progressively alienated from as they walk in this new life is that that this wasn't all about it. About what with the here and the now, but it's about the future. It's just a warm up right here. And the older I get, the more I'm encouraged with that. The more, the older I get as I'm headed closer to 60 now than 50 is that, is that the more I'm I'm so grateful that, you know, and and so reminded that, you know, this is not it. You know, even for friends who who don't know Christ or those who are believers who have pursued and put all their eggs in this basket here. You know, it's, it's like, man, Lord, I'm so glad I didn't do that. I'm so glad I didn't invest all my stuff here. You know, the, you, know, you know, the saying, you probably have heard it, that there's, there's, not, there's no hearsts, you know, those are that carry caskets to the graveyard, your, the old bodies, is that there's no hearsts that are pulling right? you hauls right? We don't have our stuff, you know, all our stuff in there, and they don't, we don't get buried with them like pharaohs and thinking that somehow we'll take it with us, but, but we as believers know that, uh, that this is just preparatory warm-up to what's ahead, the real, the real future, right? To which I, I even as we, we shared last week, just with in this time and time again, and, and we've talked about it as a family, is that this will appear as a distant dream someday. And so how would you have wished you'd lived your life? How would you have you'd spent your money, your resources? And I, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, the saying is, is, is again, is it those who has the most toys, you've heard the saying, those who have the most toys, What? win you know what it's it's it's, no it's the absolute opposite at the end it's gonna be that's not mine (laughs) those aren't mine (laughs) no no those aren't mine lord if we've amassed all this stuff and, and wasted our lives in pursuing things that don't matter don't matter Instead of investing our lives in things that matter. And that God gives us wealth and homes to invest in eternity. The things that matter. And we exercise hospitality and we open our homes. So that that 93% who looks at us as extreme and irrelevant. Can come into our homes and go, oh my goodness. There is this supernatural, imperfect lifestyle that's being lived among them. That I I gravitate toward. I want to see Jesus. And we just bought a home in Aurora, Illinois, and, and it's, it's way bigger than one, than a family with only one in the household still, right? But we've had people live with us most of our lives. Most of our lives we have people live with us because there's no better way to and have people in our home so that they can see Jesus. Believers are to be given to hospitality to be opening our homes to people around us, to our neighbors. We're to be hosting. We just moved into our house. We just hosted a, a, a party for all our neighbors. You know, and, and, you know, and it's edgy, and there's things that we have to watch, and you have to watch who's with your kids and all those things, but that's all part of it. That's We give ourselves to the Great Commission. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We don't want to waste our lives in a holy huddle, right? Let's all huddle up. Let's hang in here until Jesus comes back. Hey? Well, that's not what we're given, to, right? But see, because that heavenly focus, we're we're on we're on mission. We understand it's not about here and now. We understand that this—it's all about a future. That someday I will stand before the Lord and give an account for my life. This little vapor. My dad died at fifty-four. I'm next month fifty-seven. A couple weeks, fifty-seven. Life is short. Life is short. How do we wish we had lived our lives, right? How do we wish we would lived our lives? You know, I, I think the, in the church in Crete is being reminded that they know it's not about here looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior. It's like, look ahead. Have this eagerness. Remind yourselves. Remind each other in community as you were in groups and our small groups and life groups or whatever you refer to as you gather in community. Remind ourselves. That's part of it. Every week when I gather with our life groups, we recalibrate to reality. We recalibrate. Yeah, this is what it's about. Yeah, let's pray for our neighbors. Let's be involved. Let's invest our lives in people around us that need Jesus. Let's give Let's out give ourselves to, in giving them to the Lord's work financially. I've had a chance and over the years as things have come up and I had a side real estate business that I started to uh, to help pay for my kids college. They, they would go debt free and I did it 10 hours a week for about 12 or 13 years. It wasn't anything ever big. I think the most we ever had was like four or five mortgages at once. But, but I remember the, um, trying to come into this place where I could call uh, other people that were, had real money and say, Hey, you know what? There's a need here. Would you match me? There's a need in the body. Would you match me? It's like, well, and I knew and he knew that he had multiple times wealth that I ever would ever have. And it's like, well, yeah, I'll match it. And I'll raise you one whatever you know it's it's the kind of thing we we should out give we should be encouraging each other hey let's out let's out let's out let's do all we can to encourage each other to run hard and fast out of what matters most right in this kingdom work that what god is doing and so true saving faith brings about this future heavenly focus we know it's not about here it's the future so it it, it impacts what i prioritize it impacts my stewardship saying god i want to be a part of your great story the church and creed had to wrestle through those things and so do we right and then, lastly, last realization that I believe Paul was underscoring for the church in creed. We see in verse fourteen, he says, "He says Christ Jesus. He says, looking, referring to Christ, this great God and Savior. But notice how he qualifies him: who gave Himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back, to purchase us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify Himself to cleanse us from." Him, for himself, a people for his own possession, I love this, zealous for good deeds. That Paul is helping the church to understand that that Jesus, when he came, who brought this salvation, who we look forward to his return, is that he what he did is he redeemed us, he purchased us at a great price, that he might purify for himself a people, us, that are his possession. We're no longer our own. And then how we... Describe zealous for good deeds. The church in Crete had to understand amidst of this can be oppressive, godless culture that they're called to be different. And in this difference is not to be those who are intimidated and, and shrink back into a holy huddle, but they're instead those to be zealous for good deeds. We're about the mission of God. We're proclaiming the mission of God. We understand that it's not about here and now, but we are to be those who are zealous. This is where we get the thought of Enthusiasm we're enthusiastic we're given to good deeds the good deeds are can only be understood in the midst of god's great kingdom work right it's not good deeds just for ourselves the church is the only one of the few institutions in the world that exists for the sake of those outside of it we don't exist for ourselves and we could do holy huddle in heaven a lot better right I mean, so we're here for a purpose, to be on mission for Christ. I, that's why I love the, the songs. I'm like, wow. I, some of those songs I weren't familiar with, I go, man, I want to, honey, that, those lyrics, I go, I was speaking to my wife, Dawn, is, um, is the, uh, like, those lyrics, like, those, those are beautiful lyrics about the mission and the story of God. And to be reminded and recalibrated, like, hey, this is what we're about. It's not about retirement. It's it's not about, like, well, what can I do to, to make life comfortable when I hit a certain age and I don't have to work. I mean, no, it's like, how do you get freed up and to really invest in the kingdom of God? I, I, one of the things I really love about Don's parents, my wife's parents, is, is that they were a great model for me. They uh, When he retired from Arco, he worked for Arco for a number of years, and, and uh, I think he was a VP in manufacturing or something like that. But but I... I um, one of the things I love about it is he had a relatively early retirement is he gave himself and he worked a full-time job in the church and never drew a salary. He'd show up in that church with a tie-on. That's probably not crossway culture, but anyway, with a tie-on and he would go to work investing his life for years, for the last you know, 10, 15 years, giving himself to kingdom work. He, they, got on, they went on mission trips you know, in their 60s. I'm like, wow, way to go. They started to really get busy for the kingdom. And that's what God's calling us to, right, as people of God, is that we understand that God's eternal purposes involve using us, here's the realization, using us, his people, in his great unstoppable plan. In his great unstoppable plan. We are part of this great story of God. And so here's the question that we ask ourselves is that we... It's because as I'm reminded of this, and as, as I was challenged by some of the songs, that last one, I think it uses words about ease and, and um, things of, that would talk about complacency. I was, I was just reflecting my own life. I go, Lord, how, how am I doing that? You know, Lord, Lord what, what about my life? I mean, how am I going after your great work? How purposeful am I? What's my home like? What do my kids see about what's important to me? What does that look like for me? I think the church of Crete had to wrestle with those same questions when they understood is that our lives are to be such that we manifest the zealousness as God's unique, peculiar people to be a part of his great story, his great plan. And in the context in Crete is that they were pro- establishing churches throughout this island, it had over 100 cities on it. I don't know how many of them had heard the gospel, but you could argue a good percentage of them. And so now he's going back and establishing churches, forming elders, establishing elders, and forming these churches that would be about continuing the work of God, of making disciples on that island. And so here's the, the question What difference should this make for you, Monday morning? So, what difference should this make for you? I mean, where, where are you in your journey? I'm challenged by this text because I think about my life and I say, do my kids, do my children, do they see Tom Harkis as one who lives out this identity as God's possession? Zealous, enthusiastic. You know, the the Latin for enthusiasm is enthias. Enthusiasm, enthias, which is in God. Enthusiasm of all God's people, we should be what? Enthusiastic, right? Enthusiastic about it. And so, as God's people, to be having this passion and this focus, you say, God, I want to proclaim, I need to ask myself the question, you know, how, what do my kids see? And, and, I, and I want to, it, it, later this, maybe later today, pull my one in, aside in the house and say, What do you see in us? What do you see about your mom and I? Is there this enthusiasm for the work of God? Is this, do, do we live out this identity of your as?" God's peculiar people, his possession, zealous for good deeds, enthusiastic. And then then I have to ask the question, and and this is, I love this part of it, is if we all said yes to this, if we said, God, whatever is obstructing this transforming grace of God, Lord, would you remove it this morning? Would you do whatever you can to just kind of take it out of the way, obliterate the the babble of, of 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 self-idolatry, of consumerism, or self-comfort. Lord, would you just get rid of all that stuff? And Lord, would you just, as I meditate on your word within the community of your people, through the Spirit of God, would you transform me to live this grace out? What might God do with Rock Valley Bible? Think about that for a second. If everybody here said yes, Lord, to this passage. If everybody said, Lord, completely, whatever it takes, I I want you to do whatever you want in my life right here. What would it look like? Just think about that for a moment. What, what would your world look like, look like? What would your home look like? What would your neighbors say about you? what would they? How might it impact your neighbors? What about people you work with? What about relatives and, that you have in your life, but you're kind of the odd ones? What would it look like if we all said, Lord, I I want to live this out. What would God do with Rock Valley Bible? What would God do with Rock Valley Bible? If we all said yes, Lord. Who wants to find out? Does anybody want to find out? Anybody Anyone to find out? I I, I do. I mean, as we're praying for, that this would be a church that is passionate, that this, even a year or two years from now, that this place would be filled. the, the, The seats that are empty near you would be filled with people that have come to know Jesus through your lives. And they're messy. They're messy. We're all messy, but they're really messy when they just come to Christ, right? Spiritual babies. And so they need to be encouraged. And, and I can't help but believe that even as you all consider and taking the steps toward coming and becoming a crossway, that this would be something that God would bring a lot of glory to Himself through this church in this part of the world. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? And I want to give you a few moments to just a to do inventory, to, to respond to what God has put on your heart. I trust if you're in Christ, as his word is opened, that God has spoken to you. If he hasn't, then, then I, I would encourage you to ask the Lord, what, what is it in your life that keeps you from hearing from him as his word is opened? And if you're here without Christ, I would encourage you and invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who died and rose for you, he who shed his blood, who took your hell, that you might have his heaven. He who bore your sin, your judgment on the cross, that you would believe, simply believe in the Lord Jesus as a gift to receive it. And even now to say, Lord, save me. Lord, open my eyes but that I might believe and Lord that would you Lord bring spiritual life to me that I'd be born from above, born again. And so Lord, I ask you for to do that. I ask you, Lord, to have your gracious work in all of our lives. I am so grateful for this church It just senses and such a neat spirit in the worship time. And Lord, that your gracious work that you would do here and that even in years to come that this as this church grows and as they add services by your grace that it would be marked by many who, who right now are without hope and without you neighbors friends colleagues at work relatives family lord would you use this choice and precious group of saints to make much of your great fame that your name would be lifted up. And like in the island of Crete, as Paul wrote back to Titus, that this church would be marked by a transforming grace, your changing power. And we know it's all of you. We know that we all are needy, Lord. We know that into this day, we every day I need you. I'm desperate for the gospel every day. Often have to ask forgiveness of those around me of the residual sin that still resides in my flesh. And so, Lord, I I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you don't love us based on our performance. But because of your son's righteousness, we stand accepted in Christ Jesus. And you loved us first and you continue to love us first. That you're for us. And so, Lord, as your children, we respond as we confess any inconsistencies, any sin, any hindrance. We want to lay that at your feet. We want to thank you for your forgiveness as your children. And then we ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill us. That we leave here as those who are committed, filled with your spirit. As your servants, part of your great story and plan on this planet. A planet that is dying for change for many that know their need for change that you have already prepared. In Jesus' name, God's people said...